When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 346th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast, which is brought to you this week by Euphoria on HBO. Euphoria follows a group of high school students as they navigate love and friendships in a world of drugs, sex, trauma, and social media. Critics hail the series as, quote, downright gorgeous, close quote, and, quote, truly remarkable, close quote. Nominated for six Emmys, including Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series for Zendaya, Euphoria for your consideration. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most respected and beloved character actors of his generation. Everyone knows and loves him for one thing or another that he's done over the course of his 40 years in the business, be it Broadway's The Band Visit, the indie film Big Night, or TV series such as Wings, Monk, and most recently, Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, on which he plays Abe Weissman, the quirky patriarch of a 1950s Jewish family. A man whose mantelpiece includes four Emmy Awards, three SAG Awards, a Golden Globe Award, and a Tony Award, Tony Shalhoub. Over the course of our conversation, the 66-year-old and I discussed what it was like being one of 10 kids born to Lebanese immigrants, how his restless streak has forced him to take great professional risks that could have resulted in disaster, but instead led to some of his greatest successes, why he has so relished the challenges that he has taken on in recent years, from tackling his first musical to navigating intricately mapped out scenes opposite the lead of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, phenom Rachel Brosnahan, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 
Tony, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to see you. And uh, before we get into your amazing story of your life and career, I want to first ask you about two things that are going on in the news, which I think you have an interesting perspective on. First of all, for people who may not know, and I'm going to ask you more about this momentarily, you are of Lebanese descent, and it's been a, a crazy week there with this Beirut explosion. I just wondered, I, I hope everyone that you know is okay. What did you make of all of that? Well, it, it, it was shocking, of course, and it's tragic. I have a friend, uh, actually visited Lebanon about two and a half years ago for the very first time. Um, it was right after we had uh, been shooting in, uh, was shooting Maisel in Paris, and we thought um, we had a little time off afterwards and thought that would be a good opportunity to go right from there to Beirut and visit. I had never visited the country. I wanted to see the the little village where my father was born, and um, we, were, we were able to do that and explore other parts of the country. And we we met some great people and took um, some of us, some of them took us around. And um, so I've been in touch with uh, a couple of those people, and it's uh, it's devastating. They've, they've just never experienced anything like it. The locals, they many of them have, you know, lived through. Um, the, uh, the the Civil War and uh, the, which was fourteen fifteen years long and and this seems somehow even uh, more severe and more devastating to them so so we're trying to figure out where the best place is to you know we want to donate we want to help families we want to help people to uh, uh, see if we can raise money to help rebuild some businesses there and um, in if and when they can you know, get things up and running again on that area. Uh, but also there's so much, it, it goes so much deeper when you really start to drill down into the whole economic and political uh, mm-hmm. issues there. It's it's incredibly complicated and they're going through a massive uh, transitional time. So Yeah. Well, that's one very tough thing that's going on. And then the other, of course, is COVID-19, which I, in prepping for this, learned that actually back in April, in the early days, you and your wife had had contracted it. And I, you're, I haven't spoken with anyone yet who's been through it. So I wanted to just ask you, uh, how rough was it and how are you doing now? Well, actually, ours hit um, in early in mid-March. Um, Mid-March. We were kind of, you know, right around the time everybody was seeing the news about Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson and, and in those in those sort of early, uh, when, when everything was still kind of new and unfamiliar. That's about the time we were we were in New York, and that's about the time we got sick. And so uh, it was a couple of really rough weeks, not as rough as some, and we weren't hospitalized, thank God. But uh, there were there were moments where we really felt we really needed to take care of each other. The, the problem is with this kind of a which this kind of a thing is it's because it's so unfamiliar. You you don't know whether you're on the front end of it or the middle or the back end. It's kind of like being in an earthquake. Is it, mm-hmm. is it going to get worse? Is it, is it going to get more extreme? Is it, is it ending now? You just never, you never have that certainty. And, and what happened to us was that we, we were sick for a good solid week. And then we, one day we'd wake up and we really start to feel better and thought, okay, well, we're out of the woods now. This is uh, we're in the, we're on the right trajectory. And then the next day, you were down for the count again. And this happened probably three, four days in a row. So that was disconcerting. And uh, that kind of 
made us feel like we were, um, you know, we were just never going to sort of be free of it. How does it manifest itself? What were you feeling? Well, that's another, uh, that's another thing. She and I, my wife and I had diff- different symptoms, uh, some overlapping symptoms, but she had stomach issues, which I didn't have. I had really, really difficult, um, severe uh, respiratory issues. My bronchioles were so, so tight. And she didn't have that, although she did have a, a cough for a while. We both had headaches and fever on and off and achiness and especially the tiredness, the, the kind of all consuming exhaustion, uh, you know, in the middle, early, early afternoon, it would just sort of hit you and, and you were just kind of, you had to, you had to get off your feet. But, um, so, so that was another, that was another baffling situation because we, we were comparing notes, but not, not really, we weren't really aligned on, on too many things. So we had to sort of, <laughs> we were trying to treat this thing and we were just kind of making it up as we went along, helping each other, but, um, well, thank God. It sounds like you guys are both okay now or still oh, yeah. lingering we, things uh, or yeah. there, you know, there are, there's a long, long tail to this thing, which is, an, uh, you hear some people talk about and, um, every once in a while you kind of feel like, Oh, I'm not feeling a hundred percent. Is this residual COVID or is it the onset of something else? But, you know, now that we're, uh, we're, we're out of the city now. And so, um, we're taking it easy. We're, really, really, we're not seeing many people at all. And so we're, we're starting to feel like we're, we're getting it back to a hundred percent. Well, uh, glad to hear that. And Thanks. at this point I will go to where we would normally start, which is just at the basics for people who, who may not know where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? <laughs> well, I was born in, uh, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And uh, for, to a large uh, family, I was the second youngest of 10. And um, my dad, um, um, as you can imagine, my mother was busy at home. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, my dad was an independent businessman. And he kind of built up this, this little, um, uh, he was a salesman. And, and, you know, we were kind of a, I guess you, you know, what would you call a blue collar kind of working class family, but, um, you know, he did well and he was, he was able to kind of make it work with, with all 12 of us. And so it was a, it was a bit of a chaotic childhood, as you (laughs) can imagine, but it was also kind of great and wild and, uh, you know, went to public school and high school anyway. And, um, and we, uh, my family, uh, my siblings, we we still stay close and, and try, try to stay close and connected. I go back to Wisconsin a couple of times a year and have, uh, you know, season tickets to yeah. pack, Packers, of course. <laughs> nice. And uh, yeah, it is nice. And uh, we have we own some property there and but uh, by, by the lake. And um, so it's it it was. I really look at it as a as a great, you know, uh, it was a great place to grow up. Yeah. So you're. Father, I believe, was first generation American. Your mother, second. My father was an immigrant, so that makes me first that's, generation. Sorry, right? that's what I. Yeah, I got to yes, characterize it. To, that's right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, he came <laughs> over when he was a boy, um, having lost his parents in um, in Lebanon when he was very young. So came over with his siblings and uh, to 
you know, they were sponsored by and lived with relatives already living here in Wisconsin. Don't ask me why they were there. <laughs> so yeah, so they, uh, my mother was born in this country, but her folks also came from the Middle East. So that was part of our growing up, uh, the, the culture. Yeah, of I was going to ask you, you know, something like that being the, as you say yourself, the first generation, and then also being one of 10 kids. How do you think those kinds of things, if at all, shape the person who you are today? Uh, very much so. Um, one of my older sisters is an actress. She kind of, I guess you could say, paved the way for me. She's actually on Stranger Things, uh, lives ah. in Atlanta, and she's in, in Stranger Things, and has been a uh, you know, uh, theater actress for a long, long time. And, uh, and so, I don't know, I guess I was... The thing about growing up in a big family is you always have a built-in audience, and, and, and there's a... <laughs> And there's a kind of it's uh, it's it's a kind of thing where you're you're always sort of entertaining each other or trying to let's say, <laughs> and so there was always a lot of play that kind of play going on and a lot of music and there were some of my siblings you know played instruments and so it was um it was it was uh, you 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 were never wanting for an audience uh, some applause and, yeah. and I think that that for me it, it just it took hold in a big way. Now, is the sister who's on Stranger Things the same sister who I believe roped you into acting for the first time when you That's were right. quite young? Yeah, <laughs> she was. She was in high school, and I was about six. And uh, she, they were doing The King and I at their uh, at that high school, and I got kind of recruited, you might say, to be one of the kids in that. And so. Um, yeah, that's that's where the, the, the hook was set, you might say. So I guess, um, you know, you, it seems like from what I've read, remain involved with acting in the way that kids would through junior high school, high school, um, go off to, I guess, initially University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, then transfer to University of Southern Maine in Portland, Maine, where I actually once went to summer camp at Androscoggin is in Portland uh, or Wayne, Maine. But anyway, Whoa, uh, sure. beautiful, right. yeah, right. <laughs> beautiful part Maine. of the country. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I guess there, what happened that made theater more of a focus? I think it was, it was uh, something at University of Southern Maine, right? Right. I, I you know, it, I, I have to kind of confess I went to Maine more or less on a lark. I, I, I was kind of, it was my early days of college. I was, you know, kind of floating and exploring and trying to figure out what it was I was going to really focus in on. And um, and I, I chose Maine for all the wrong reasons. I mean, you know, just like the lamest of reasons, you know, um, <laughs> uh, which we can get into later. But uh, I... Uh, I grew up never having had lobster. How's that? That's that's the, <laughs> that's one of the main things. Um, but I, when I got there, I discovered that this school, this this state university, just had a fantastic theater program. And um, I had done some acting classes at the University of Wisconsin too, of course. But but this this department was uh, it was it was really a, you know fertile fertile territory, and. Um, I really knew quite quite early on, once having once having transferred there, that that was going to be uh, that I would get the support that I needed to really um, kind of fulfill that dream, you know. So um, 
So I did a lot of work at the school. And uh, there was also my senior year in Portland, uh, there was a, a small local theater. They were kind of, I guess they were semi-professional. I think they had some some equity uh, actors and some non-equity. And um, they were called the Profile Theater. And uh, I kind of, uh, they were doing what I thought was just, you know, being a student, you, just, you go to this outside the university setting and, oh my God, it was really impressive. And, and I got, I sort of got my foot in the door there and they, you know, first started, you know, getting, gathering props and running lights and doing walk-ons. And then as the season progressed, I started actually getting, you know, pretty, pretty good roles there. Even though I was still, you know, obviously finishing up my senior year, I was working at night at this theater. That theater has since become Portland Stage, which is a, you know, their regional, you know, kind of local, uh, great, great theater. But um, having the kind of the protection and, and the uh, sort of the comfort zone of the, of the university theater setting and branching out into the, this theater downtown, that really um, kind of inspired me. And I, I applied to the Yale Drama School uh, that spring. And, and, then, and then that next fall, I was there. So in applying to the Yale School of Drama, this one of the, if not the best MFA program there is, uh, that seems like you're making a, you were making a commitment at that point that this is what you wanted to do with your life. That was going to be a, you know, that was going to be a big thing if you got in. How did your folks feel about this path in life that you were now kind of heading down? Well, you know, I think they were, my older sister, again, having, having, you know, uh, graduated from high school and then uh, she went to theater school in Pittsburgh. Uh, so she, she kind of paved the way and, and took a lot of the heat. <laughs> <laughs> so I think maybe my experience, you know, m maybe the pushback would have been greater uh, had, had she not hacked through the brush with the machete <laughs> 10 years before me. Um, right. So I think, and also you got to remember now my parents, you know, after, after 10, <laughs> at this at this stage and in this at their at this age of, in their lives, I mean, they were just pretty much, you know, kind of thrown in the towel. <laughs> I mean, they were just kind of like, okay, well, the other as long one as he's out of the house, yeah, the, the other one survived. So right. let's just, you know, they're. I think they were just tired of. They were tired of the whole thing. <laughs> well, I mean, so you you are now uh, off in New Haven then for what is it three years? It was a three year three year yeah. master's program, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the New Haven area. I know that sometimes Yale rep, you, you know, it feeds into Yale rep, I believe the, the students. Right. And, it's, a, uh, it's connected. It's a conservatory situation. Sure. And, you know, you've got, you're pretty close to New York. So you've got, I'm sure people coming to see you and all of that. So is that where it sort of began to seem real? Like, you know, this is going to, this is going to be my future and, and you, you, you know, how did, I guess, how did those years change it? Right. It, it, it really did. Though that, that time at Yale cemented it pretty, pretty well. It, it wasn't until that time that I really started to think that possibly this could be a viable career path, you know. Before me, uh, before my experience at Yale, you know, uh, Meryl Streep had had gone through that program and Sigourney Weaver and, uh, you know, lots of great 
actors, writers, directors, you know, playwrights, um, designers. So, so there, we knew that there were, you know, we were aware that there were people out, out in the world before, you know, that had gone through the program that were, that were working. And, um, and I'm not talking about movies and although Meryl was, you know, obviously she was on that path too, but, but I'm talking about in, 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 in theater in, in New York and regional theater. And that's really what we were being trained for. We were, the emphasis was all on theater. And I imagined that I would have a life in the theater and I, I, that's what I really wanted. And that's what I really, um, you know, work toward. Were you secretly or privately kind of hoping for a screen career as well? Or was that not even a priority? I mean, I guess it wasn't, it wasn't the end game. It wasn't the, the ultimate goal. The goal was to be, you know, to, to have a career on any, on any terms really, but, you know, in the theater you can, or at least then it was possible, you know, you could carve out a, a, a fairly, you know, um, a decent living. I mean, a modest, but, but you were, if you were doing what you loved, then, you know, that was really the goal to be doing what you loved with people that you respected and, and be in an environment where you could constantly grow and evolve as a, as an artist. So, so, but I mean, yeah, I guess, I guess, you know, did we dream of, you know, I guess so. But, you know, right, right around that time, it started to become apparent that it didn't have to be an either or situation. And people could move from one to the other. And uh, but, you know, the truth is, when I got out of the drama school, I pretty much I pretty much did theater for a lot of years before the other. I was going to say, else. I mean. Rather than moving to New York or L.A. right away, it looks like you were on the road for a good three or four years um, just doing theater, right? I was in I moved from the from New Haven. I went right up. I was offered a job uh, up at the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I didn't go. The reason I didn't go to New York is because I didn't I was broke and I was, you know, I had student loans and I didn't want to. I didn't want to just kind of tough it out and wait on tables and that kind of thing. I I wanted to continue the work that that we had been doing at the school and at the Yale Rep. And I had that opportunity because Robert Brustein, who who was the dean of the drama school and the artistic director of the Yale Rep, moved up after his tenure at Yale, moved up to... Uh, a facility at Harvard and started the American Repertory Theater. So it was a natural transition. I moved to Cambridge and I was going to just maybe do one season there, but one turned into four. And so uh, I loved it there. And we, we, we had, you know, steady work. We were probably working 10 months. Uh, our season was maybe 10 months long. And, and it was, it was a terrific period of growth. We toured sometimes, you know, uh, in in the states and sometimes in Europe and and so we had a lot of uh, a lot of great we had a company of of people and a lot of great experiences. So why why then in 1984 you know did you decide all right I am gonna try New York which is the the more customary thing I guess for a, a young actor to do and what happened there in that first year where uh, it seems like on paper a year after arriving you're making your 
Broadway debut. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty quick turnaround well, in, actually, in the Odd Couple. Not to put too fine a point on it, but it was actually a matter of months. I was months, those, yeah. One of those fluky <laughs> things. Yeah. Well, what happened was I d- had done, as I said, an, a number of uh, four seasons at the American Repertory Theater, and uh, loved it. Loved loved Boston, but I don't know. I've got something. There's something wrong with me. I've got a, <laughs> you know, I I get. I have a kind of a restless uh, streak in me. I think it's it's when 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 things are going really well, and I I I have to sort of change things so that things can go poorly again. You know, I just <laughs> it's a terrible habit. Uh, I, I I don't know. I don't. Not to say that I was becoming complacent in in Boston. I I don't think I wouldn't go that far. But um, I I thought I maybe I should just try my hand at you know. I don't know. I don't know what it was. It was just a so kind of a feeling of restlessness. And I also thought, you know, now I'm not quite as broke. I'm not as much in debt for, you know, my loans. And, you know, I had managed to save. We weren't making much in Cambridge, but I managed to save a bit. And I was, I thought I could give New York a shot. And if New York didn't work out after a year or so, I, I was... You know, I had talked to Brustein and, and he was saying, look, you know, you just you can always come back here if you if you need to, if you want to. We want, you know, we welcome you back. So I had a little bit of a safety net there, mm-hmm. which was, uh, you know, kind of gave me a little more uh, kind of confidence and less yeah. p- possibly less anxiety. So I went to New York and um, and very quickly within really just a couple of months, really, I got this uh this Neil Simon play, a pre-Broadway tour of uh, the female odd couple. And let's just, you know, I mean, Neil Simon was not exactly on my radar. I mean, you know, I had just come out of three years of the drama school and four years of, of, uh, you know, repertory. We were not doing Neil Simon there. I mean, (laughs) uh, we were doing (laughs) not that. And... um, (laughs) Not that I had anything against it. I just, I had no experience there. I just wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't in my, it wasn't an arrow in my quiver, really. And um, so I took a, you know, a really abrupt and deep dive into the commercial theater <laughs> from, the non, <laughs> from the nonprofit to the commercial theater. And boy, it was fun. God damn it. It was really fun. I read that, as you're saying, it was sort of going on before it went to Broadway, there were some traveling with it. And in yeah, fact, a, a whole tour, a whole Broadway, all around the country. I believe somehow, um, first of all, I know that maybe about a, a year and change before that you'd lost your mom, but your father, I think it sounds like from one of the stories I read, he actually really became a true believer only after you arranged a, a dinner in conjunction with that tour. Can you share what that was? Oh, yes. Yes. Well, the, the, the female odd couple starred Rita Moreno and Sally Struthers as Florence and Olive, the counterparts to <laughs> Felix and Oscar. Mm-hmm. And uh, and myself and uh, another terrific actor, Louis J. Stadlin, uh, we played the Costasuela brothers, these Spanish brothers who were the counterparts to the Pigeon Sisters in the original. Anyway, my father was not a big uh, t- 
maybe not such a big TV watcher, but he loved All in the Family. (laughs) And when he found out that I was doing this play with Sally Struthers and um, uh, he, we had a part of our tour, uh, our national tour, took us to three or four cities in Florida that winter. And my dad at this time was spending winters in Florida, having been burnt out on Wisconsin winters, as you might imagine. And uh, (laughs) so he came to see the play. We were, I think we were in Fort Lauderdale, I guess. Anyway, I'm not sure that my father really, in his whole life, went to see that many plays. I, I, you could probably yeah. count him on one hand. <laughs> but, um, but he came to the play, and I, I, by this time, we, you know, the company was pretty close, and I asked Sally if, if she would do a dinner with with my dad, and and she just loved the idea, so she very graciously agreed to it, and it was uh, so all of a sudden I was, you know. I was legitimate. <laughs> That's great. Well, screen acting now, I guess, enters the picture pretty soon after that because, and actually in two ways that are sort of interesting, I want to just ask you about because two projects that reached audiences in 1986, in terms of film, the first one I want to ask you about is Mike Nichols' directed film, Heartburn. It's starring Jack Nicholson, Meryl Streep, and at one point, Tony Shalhoub, but uh, th- there, there, was a, there was a lesson that came through that one, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, um, you know, th- that was the, my first, I guess, real kind of experience with the roller coaster of, of <laughs> show business. You know, I, uh, I, the truth is, is that, you know, Mike, Mike Nichols, obviously, because he had such a long and you know, great relationship with Neil Simon over many, many years, had come to see uh, The Odd Couple when I was still on Broadway. And um, I was called in to read for this part in Heartburn. So it was thrilling because, Mike, when I was just a kid, I, you know, we were listening to the Nichols and May records, and, and it was, he was a hero of mine. So... Anyway, it was a little part, and um, he hired me to do it, and uh, my stuff was with with Meryl Streep, and uh, I told, you know, the thing about, this was like before the internet and before all cell phones and all that, and I, but I did tell everyone that I had ever met in my <laughs> life that I had done this movie, <laughs> directed by Mike and, and with Meryl and all this, and uh then, you know, we shot the movie, I think it was like in the summer or fall. And then usually it takes a, almost a year for a movie to be released. And so a couple months before the movie was going to be released, I got, I was working in Florida on a play down there, a different play. And uh, I got a, a letter from Mike saying, you know, that I, my part was just cut out. Was, he was very sorry, but the, there just wasn't room for this. There was a kind of a running gag through the movie. Then they lost it all. And, uh. And you know it's 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 very hard to then contact all these people that you <laughs> brag to <laughs> that that you maybe you know maybe you're not in the movie at all. Oh, so uh, that was a bit of a that was a bit of a hit. We should say you did work with Mike eventually ten years later or twelve years ten years I think in Primary Colors right. That's right. Um, I I did Primary Colors again. So Mike you know and he would come and see, you know, you know, he would come, he did, saw 
almost everything, I'm sure, uh, on Broadway mm-hmm. and, and off-Broadway in New York. So, uh, you know, occasionally our paths would cross. And I did readings for him and with him on other projects. And so so then he, you know, he took... <laughs> took pity on me and put me in <laughs> put me in primary colors. So that was the first film experience. The first TV credited role is interesting just in it seems like you took another maybe a little bit of a a lesson or a, a, a something from this as well. The first is a first credited role was in an hour long drama called The Equalizer and your guy that you played was not credited with a name. He was listed in the credits as terrorist. And I think that you vowed after that that there was not going to be a second role like that, right? I mean, it was a... Yeah, yeah. This was, let's say, I'm trying to, like, figure out this is the timeline on this. I'm, I'm going to guess it was, like, 80... Oh, I guess it must have been 86. It, it was 86, yeah, it was. Because I was... Mm-hmm. I, I, the only reason I know that is because I in the in this episode, I had a mustache and it was the mustache that I was, you know, had grown for the play. <laughs> so, uh, and I couldn't shave it. So, um, yeah, you know, it was a really great experience. I mean, it was my first foray into episodic and shooting fast. And, and I worked with a really good director and, and Edward Woodward, who was the, the guy who played the lead in the series. He was fantastic and supportive. But I just realized, you know, that that I didn't want to get kind of pigeonholed into that part, given my ethnicity and all that. And so uh, I tried to just sort of do other things and sidestep Mm -hmm. those roles. Well, you were back on Broadway for the Heidi Chronicles 89 to 90 as a replacement this time. And is that where you met your... Wife, or was that a different version of Heidi Chronicles? No, that's that's where I met Brooke. Yeah. And then I guess not long after that, there was some kind of a decision to move to L.A., move out west. What precipitated that? Again, you know, it, it, that, that, that thing of I, I, was, I was really feeling like I had gotten, a, a, you know, quite a toehold there in New York. I was feeling comfortable going into casting offices. I was, you know, I was getting some TV stuff, some film stuff, and still doing a ton of theater. And so I was feeling pretty, pretty good. <laughs> so, of course, <laughs> I had to just break it right off. <laughs> and I, again, I just, I don't know. There's just something wrong with me. I thought, well, this is, this is all going too well. I've got to go. I got to go where, uh, you know, I can be a big failure. So, um, <laughs> I, I, again, it was more of a lark. I just thought, well, I'll give LA a shot. And if it doesn't work out, I suppose I'll come back to New York. And that's, that, I, I just really don't have a better story. No, I mean, that that's, a, that's interesting. And I think if, if the, if we want to further infuriate any young actors who are listening and struggling, because you said, you know, when you moved to New York, it was just months before you got your first Broadway role. You moved to L.A. What was your first audition? Oh, I had a lot of auditions in L.A., but the problem was I, I it was it was a very different landscape in terms of the business than, than I had gotten used to in New York. I was with a good agency 
uh, that was, you know, had offices in both in New York and in L.A. So I they were sending me up a lot. I had a little bit of, you know, screen credit stuff. I had some Broadway credits. I I had some te- television film stuff. But I don't know. I was struggling in L.A. I did not. I was getting auditions, but I was not getting callbacks. Whereas, whereas in New York, I was at least getting almost pretty regularly getting callbacks. If I didn't get the job, I, I probably got two or three callbacks and, you know, um, sabotage myself somehow. But anyway. <laughs> well, the reason I asked, though, was just that I, so I guess I, somebody misreported in an earlier piece, but I had read that Wings initially, yes, initially as, a, I think, a guest part, but that that was one of the very first things that you went out for. Oh boy, no, that is that is uh, not accurate. Not okay. accurate. No, because I I was getting really discouraged because I'll tell you, I, I can give you the kind of timeline. I, I moved out from New York to LA around the time of my birthday, which is early October. Mm-hmm. And I was doing, a, I was auditioning a lot. I just was not getting any traction in Los Angeles. And I was second guessing you know, my decision. And, uh, I was doing a play in a really tiny theater that I had done in New York to some success off Broadway. And in LA, it was just, it was not happening. (laughs) It was, (laughs) it was a New York play, not an LA play. So it was wings was probably, I didn't audition for wings until January. So, so there was a number of months there where I was going out, you know, several times a week for, sitcoms for film for whatever and just i I was just hitting a wall hitting do you remember were there were there any like that you really particularly wanted or that went on to become something that you did not get oh sure many um uh i had well this was actually when i was still in new york i auditioned for seinfeld for I think for, you know, for Jason Alexander's part. Really? I mean, those were, there were things that I, oh, there were many things that I just would have given my right arm to do, but I was not getting anywhere in, in LA was a, something was not, I almost feel like there was, there was possibly like too much theater on my resume where they were, (laughs) uh, ooh, theater guy, uh, I just, I just wasn't. I just wasn't finding the groove, but then I got the wings, the, 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 the audition for just that one episode of wings. And luckily the, the producers, and I think the casting director on that show, they were real theater, you know, aficionados. And they, they, when they came to New York, they, they saw a lot of theater, you know, all the time. I found this out later. So they had, I think they had seen me in, in the play and they had, uh, I think by this time, Quick Change, this movie, one of my first movies that I did with Bill Murray uh, in New York, um, that had come out. And so there was, these these guys were just more familiar with, even though I was incredibly unknown. Um, well, it was a theatrical part too, right? I mean, this guy, uh, yeah. Antonio Scarpacci, a very fiery taxi driver. Well, actually, in, in the first episode, Antonio was not, his name was Antonio, but he was actually like a restaurant he was a waiter or something, or head okay. waiter at, a, at an Italian restaurant. And he was pretty fiery and volatile. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, it, something just happened, and they kind of 
unleashed me. The director unleashed me. And um, then they asked me to come back later as a few months later as a recurring. And that's that's amazing. That was your first extended TV project, 91 to 97, 144 episodes you did. And I guess there were still opportunities in the schedule to do other things because it was it looks like maybe just a, a year into into the show, you were on Broadway getting your first en route to your first Tony nomination with Conversations with My Father. Well, that yeah, that was the beauty of uh, that sitcom schedule. And this was the first sitcom I'd ever done. But, you know, it basically was seven months of shooting and then a five-month hiatus period. And they let me out early that year to go to um, Wings let me out early to go back to New York to do conversations. And then on those in, in other years, later years of Wings, I would, you know, I did Big Night one of those on one of those hiatus periods uh, with Stanley Tucci. And so I was able to kind of keep keep doing other things while because because of that sitcom schedule was so, so great. Yeah. Well, I'll just you mentioned Big Night. And of course, I've got to ask you about that. But before there were some other either notable roles, just interesting film work. The doctor of one of the guys in Longtime Companion, 1990, the first Hollywood movie to deal with AIDS. Um, that then, 91, you're working with the Coen brothers for the first time as this kind of manic Jewish producer in Barton Fink. And you would get back to that with them years later again with the man who wasn't there. But so there's these early kind of smallish film roles, but then a, a role that you've described. Let me read back a quote to you, actually. You said that the part in Big Night as Primo, one of these two Italian immigrant brothers who have very different philosophies about how to run their restaurant in 1950s New Jersey, you have called this film, quote, such a turning point for me. I kind of look at things as sort of pre-Big Night and post-Big Night. I Absolutely. felt like that was maybe the most fortunate thing that had ever happened to me, close quote. So can you talk about why you feel that way? Well, for so many reasons. I mean, look, I had done a play with Stanley uh, a number of years while I was still living in New York, we were both living in New York. And uh, so we were friends and, you know, Big Night was the kind of, it was, it was a, kind of a, that Primo was a dream role. I mean, it really was. And to work on this kind of super original material, to have all of the support of the the film production company, uh, it was, you know, Stanley was very, uh, you know, his standards are so high and he really elevates everyone's game. And uh, I had never had that kind of experience before where where you're, you know, where you're you're working with friends where everyone's sort of like we're all peers. You know, he and Campbell Scott were directing it. Um, the, a lot of the a lot of the actors in it were, you know, people who I'd work with in the theater or knew from the theater, the material really hit home because it's about that balance. Uh, 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 it's a story about the balance between art and commerce mm -hmm. and that the kind of tug of war there. And, and we all were, we were all feeling that as young actors, you know, we were, you know, how, how, how do we hold on to our, our, our integrity and, and not starve to death and, you know what I mean? And, and how, how many times and how many ways can you feel like you're selling out before you hit a point of diminishing returns? And 
and then and then that that's you're, you know, you're, you're sort of redefined forever, you know, so all of those, the themes of the movie, the, the, you know, the, the kind of the period, I love that period. I, I, you know, to be working in that, you know, in the 1950s again, which is, you know, when I was a kid and, and, and watching, you know, my parents and my, it's, it's kind of like how I feel about Maisel, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. it's like reliving my childhood in, in a strange mm-hmm. way. So, so for many, many reasons, that that movie and and the movie struck a chord with so many people. It yeah. still do, still does. It has long, long legs. That picture, very, very passionate following. And I just want to note two of the other people, aside from you and Stanley, two other people in there. One of them was a I know a hero of yours, Ian Holm, who just recently passed away. And then another one, just for trivia buffs, in the starch scene is the same actress who now plays your in-law, Mrs. Joel Maisel's mother, Caroline Aaron. Caroline Aaron. Caroline Yeah. (laughs) So there's a long uh, connection there. But after Big Night, I don't know if it was as a result of Big Night or it was just happening anyway, but uh, just to zoom through a few other things en route to some topics, you played the pawn shop owner who turns out to be an alien in Men in Black. You played the Boston lawyer with... uh, John Travolta in A Civil Action, which I remember very fondly. And then there's there's a uh, another, I guess, maybe kind of tough lesson that people can maybe learn something from uh, who are listening about what you thought was going to be the, ne- the next big series. And I'm not talking about Monk. I'm talking about a show that was called Stark Raving Mad, and it seemed to have all the pieces, right? Yes, it was a NBC half hours. Uh, multi-cam sitcom uh, with Neil Patrick Harris, and uh, it was it was uh, Steve Levitan who then later went on to do uh, Just Shoot Me and Modern Family, and a lot of other uh, writers and uh, producers that that came off of Wings. Uh, on Wings, Steve was a just a kind of a junior writer, and uh, and it was it was you know we were given this amazing time slot. I think it was like that must see you know. NBC yeah. Thursday night dream slot. And uh, we did one season. We, I think we did 20 or so, 21 episodes. I think they aired 19. But um, for some reason, which, you know, was way above my pay grade, they uh, chose not to renew the show. So even though it had won, like, the People's Choice Award that year for Best, Best New Comedy and... Um, so that was a bit of a, that was a, that was a bite because I guess it was the first time that I really felt, aside from the fact that we were just having a blast doing it and we were proud of it. And I love working with Neil and all those people, Eddie McClintock. It was the first time where I really felt like <laughs> being, it was like being fired. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's just no other way to frame that. You know, it's your it was me and Neil and in the leading parts. And uh, and they never gave a real ex because it wasn't like nobody was watching, right? It was, uh, you know, it, it had something to do with, I don't know, who knows. It, it, we were, we came right after Frasier, which was a monster hit. And right before, I think, ER, right? Or something like that. And uh, maybe it, maybe the numbers dropped in the middle there. I, I don't know. It's, it's yeah. all about the, it's all those TV things that I don't really care to know about. <laughs> well, there's something on paper that should have, that looked like it should have worked on paper and didn't. And then conversely, 
you've got a show developed by ABC that's with a, a script that's kicking around forever, winds up at Basic Cable USA Network, and it's and it happens to be called Monk and winds up having eight amazing seasons, Golden Globe, three Emmys for your performance as this guy who, following the the unsolved killing of his wife, becomes a bit OCD, a lo- very more than a bit. Um, <laughs> I guess I just just wonder. Uh, you know, when that crossed your radar for the first time, would you ever have imagined it would have such a life? No, not not really. No. I mean, you never know with these things. It's so much about the timing, what the world is kind of, you know, what the what the what the audiences, viewers are have an appetite for how, you know, what level of familiarity is there in it and what. What level of novelty is there to, you know, something to, to be seen as something kind of new and interesting, but not too weird and strange? And so, it, it's there's so many moving parts and so many unknowns. I think one of the things that, other than the you know really excellent writing and, and great creative team, USA was was kind of rebranding itself at that time. They were moving into uh, original series. They didn't have, I think they just had two or three of that. They had had, I think, a bit of a changing of the guard just before that. And um, because they had so so few original series, they they were able to focus on them and and nurture them and uh, give them a lot of care and attention and, and, and figure out good ways to to grow, you know, to market it and to, to grow the brand. And so, um, we were, we were just kind of, we were, I was very, I felt like I was just in the right place at the right time because that was not, you know, a network that I was super familiar with or wasn't like a lot of actors were clamoring to be on that network at that time, but that kind of ended up working in our favor, I think. And I remember too, just, just as worth mentioning that this was at a time when, you know, cable was, you know, obviously starting to really take hold. But I think I'm pretty sure it was USA had this, they, they took a gamble and they had this idea to, to premiere the show in the summer. And nobody was doing that then. You know, it was summer was a time for reruns. You know, people were on vacation. Nobody was home watching. Nobody, people waited till the fall to the, you know, the whole, the lineup of the new shows, blah, blah, or the new seasons. And they just thought, no, we're going to, we're not going to deal with all of that competition. We're going to just sneak it in here when no one's looking and, and hopefully, and sure enough, again, the timing. Yeah. Who knows if a year prior to that, it might've not have kind of worked, but. Interesting, and and then and then interestingly, I think a, a, a lot of other, you know, this is, then this became a time when people were, you know, DVR, and so you you could, it wasn't just you know must see viewing at this moment kind of stuff. So, so it was we were lucky, and then other other networks and other shows started to premiere in the summer, and then then it just became the schedules thing just changed. Yeah, amazing. Well, so you had previously, obviously, as we've said. You'd done Wings, which was a long run with a lot of episodes, but it, you were a uh, supporting part. You had done Stark Raving Mad, but that didn't last very long, 22 episodes. So here's the first time where 
you are carrying a show over an extended period of time, 16 hour long episodes per season, over eight seasons. Is that overwhelming? Does it, how do you keep it from getting old? Uh, just, you know, was it just a matter of, as you say, the writing or are there other, um, and I just, be, before you answer, I want to read back a quote uh, from Andy Breckman, who was the co-creator and EP, who <laughs> once said, quote, writing for Tony Shalhoub's voice is like writing for Bob Newhart. It's all about pacing, timing, the pauses. We throw different pitches at the plate to see if he can hit it. It's like a game <laughs> for us. We did an episode where he went through all five stages of grief in 30 seconds, close quote. So, I mean, this is not the kind of show where you, where you could phone it in at any time. So just, uh, I guess, to come back to the question, that's a that's quite a quite a long run to be carrying a show, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, uh, there are other, there are others who do more episodes per year for many more years, but um, it was challenging. We, again, we were very, very lucky because we had an unusual schedule that other shows, other hour longs did not have. And I'm not sure if that's changed and others have now f- taken on that pattern, but at the time... We were the only ones. We were doing, you mentioned, 16 episodes a year, and that's right. But we didn't do them all in a row. We we did it like two mini-seasons. So we start in the spring in March, let's say, and we'd shoot nine. And then we had, we had two months off. We had a two-month hiatus in the summer, which was great because my yeah. kids were out of school. I could spend time with, you know, the family. We aired those nine episodes during that hiatus in the summer. And then once those episodes were kind of just about to be burned off around Labor Day, we would come back and we would regroup the crew, you know, the crew and everybody would come back and we'd shoot the remaining seven episodes. And then we were, uh, that was two and a half months. So that would be done by Thanksgiving, let's say. So we had a four month hiatus in the winter and a two month hiatus in the summer. And it, when I told other actors that I knew who were doing it, <laughs> that we had the schedule, I made a lot of enemies. I mean, it just again, it was just one of those fluky, crazy things. But um, in a sense, it was good. The network kind of liked it because the audience then, they never had to go too many months without new, without new stuff, right? Do episodes. So, and they only had a, you know, they only had a, a shorter waiting period. You know, by breaking it up, you kind of created a little bit of an anticipation, you know, well, what's going to happen in the last half of the season sort of a thing. So, um, again, very, it, that's what made it doable. And I, we, yeah. and I didn't kill myself uh, because <laughs> had I done, you know, 16 in a row, that, that would have been daunting and more fortunate. Well, and it does seem like one of the great pairings of actor and part, because I think, I can't imagine uh, an actor doing that part who didn't have the kind of theatrical experience that you did, because this guy with all the business and the uh, physical humor, which you've, I know you've just said is, is kind of almost modeled on Chaplin. And then the backstory of, I think in your mind, you had said maybe he had, he had been a virgin. You just, I think there's a lot of stuff there that um, <laughs> it's interesting, but I'm not um, sure Andy Breckman so, agreed with that, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> well, after those eight years of Monk, you went back to Broadway for the first time in 17 years. And within a period of, I think six or seven years, just went on a run that is incredible. I was only lucky enough to see about half of these, but I just want to mention Lend Me a Tenor in 2010, 
then Golden Boy 2012 to 2013, where you get your second Tony nomination. Then the first time I got to see you on Broadway and and you were then nice enough to come do our roundtable that I moderated with uh, just the best actors of the year, including you, uh, playing Moss Hart's father, playing middle-aged Moss Hart, and then playing Moss Hart's mentor, George S. Kaufman, all with rapid changes on a circular set that was rotating, different accents for each guy, different, completely different wardrobes. It was, uh, it was really incredible. Um, and then act one, yeah. At Lincoln center, then the price, a smaller part, but an excellent show 2017. And then what I have to ask you about, of course, is the band's visit, which, you just for anyone who hasn't had the chance to see it, uh, you are playing this sort of very straight laced, turns out to be grieving conductor of a Arab band, an Egypt, from Egypt, Egyptian, an Egyptian, Egyptian band, excuse police, me, yeah, police orchestra, yes, police orchestra, uh, right. that winds up stuck in a small Israeli town in 1996. Uh, this had originally been a film. Now it's going to the theater as a musical. You are not someone who I believe had done musicals before. So no, how did this reason. even, <laughs> well, so how did this even come about? You know, I fought it like crazy. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I just kept telling them they were, they were misguided. And I gave them lists of other uh, actors that they really should have, you know, <laughs> should look at. And, um, you know, it, it was it was just one of those things where I could not, I couldn't talk them out of it, and uh, I thought, you know, I I really think it was just a, I just thought, I mean, you know, I just I need to go into some uncharted waters here and um, possibly fall flat on my face, and maybe that's okay, maybe that maybe it's time in my life for that, but I got so much support from the cast from the. The, the music director from from the from the composer the director the writer I mean they were you know they really coddled me and 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 uh you know they took good care of me and didn't let me um jump off the Brooklyn Bridge and uh I'm so glad I did it because it it it, it was uh it was terrifying and you know I it was it was humbling and uh, it all turned out great. Well, and and what's just kind of interesting, noteworthy about it, uh, among other things, is that I can't think of any anyone, any character more different from, let's say, Monk. This is a guy who is the stiffest, most kind of no business, right? I mean, he's yeah, it's a, very still, a, a stillness. Yeah. Thing, yeah. Did, was that itself challenging for a guy who's who's done a lot of more theatrical stuff? It was, actually. It, it was, and I, I really credit uh, David Cromer, the director, um, who, who, you know, really had, had to sit on me and, and kind of... Um, because my impulse is to come up with clever shtick and see if I can get a laugh here. <laughs> 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 and, you know, ingratiate myself to the audience and all that good stuff. And... Uh, and David was really, you know, really firm and 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 very articulate too about how, you know, this this guy and this this material just just didn't warrant that, and it didn't it didn't it didn't require it because it had to do with it 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 sort of spoke for itself, and and it was all it was really all about the 
the stillness of this guy and the fact that he is quite shut down and shut off from his own, you know, from, from his own emotions because he's, he's been through so much pain and he's guarded. So it really, it was a matter of restraining, <laughs> exercising enormous restraint <laughs> not to go for those laughs. Yeah. <laughs> well, the the timing also is just kind of interesting because I believe it was almost in between the transition from off-Broadway, where it was a phenomenon, to Broadway, where it was a phenomenon, that we had our 2016 presidential election, which in a way, I wonder if you think changed the the viewer experience of, of seeing this production. Absolutely. We were actually, uh, that election night was, we were in tech for for the off-Broadway uh, okay. run of that. We were down at the Atlantic Theater on 20th Street. And uh, these tech days are, as, as many know, are incredibly long. You know, you're just doing, you know, cue to cue lights and sound. And, and they're grueling days because um, they, they're, they're so long. And uh, a musical like this, you, you off-Broadway would normally take two or three tech days. And, and so um, after, the, after we were released, we all went uh, to this pub, pub around the corner to get some food and watch the results. And boy, it was, it was devastating. And the next day when we came in to do the play, to, I think it was the f- dress rehearsal or the first preview, it was all of a sudden felt like a different play mm-hmm. because of what was out there. And uh, I think, although I have to say, I've talked to other friends and, and colleagues who, who were in plays, other plays at that time. And I think everybody felt that way. Mm-hmm. It was such a seismic, uh, you know, shift. But in some ways, doing a play, especially our play, The Band's Visit, was, there was some kind of catharsis to it all, too. You know, and and it, it brought us all together and in a in a really good warm way. Yeah. Well, I believe it's in the middle of the again, in the middle of the run of doing one incarnation or the other of the band's visit that you first hear about this script called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which or the pilot script. And I, I guess I wonder what your initial reaction was, and correct me if if I have this part wrong, but I mean your bit I believe your family would be of Arab descent. You were raised Christian, and now you're being asked to play the patriarch of a Jewish family from 1950s New York in a pilot where the guy doesn't even have that much going on. So what what did you res- what did you respond to? Obviously, he later does have much going on, but what was the initial thing that made you say this is worth being part of? Well, again. A great period for me. I love the 50s, the 40s. Oh, I, I love that. I think, you know, you're right. The, the, the part of Abe in the pilot is, is, is pretty small. It's pretty contained. But I responded really to the, to the tone of it, to the writing, uh, the, the, the rhythm of it, the, the, the intelligence of it. And also the fact that this main, the main character, Midge, was around the age that my I have two daughters and so she's kind of right in between their ages and I kind of keyed into that that relationship there but it's certainly not the first time that I've played a Jewish character or no. you know or, and uh, played three in act one but, that's um, right 
<laughs> and Barton, Barton Fink, uh, and, and Barton Fink, man who was, and, yeah, and the man who wasn't there, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, so these elements were, were, you know, really were, were uh, stood out for me. And then I got, I got a phone conversation with Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino. Uh, I had not met them before, but I obviously was a fan of their work. And I just, I said, look, I, I just like to know, you know, what's the, what is, what do you see for Abe, you know, moving forward? Obviously, there's only so much story you can tell in a pilot and it's not the lead part. So you've got to take care of that story. And uh, they assured me that, you know, all of these characters were going to be served very, very well over time. And they gave me an inkling of where this was going to go. And I think I, I really responded to, I, I trusted that assurance. And I also like the fact that, you know, the, it's, a, it's about family and it's about show, it's about show business and, <laughs> You know, there's a that's a great arena for me, and um, and it was shooting in New York, right? <laughs> and, it, and and I had just moved to New York, and, and it was shooting yeah. in New York, and <laughs> oh my God, how right. how much better! And it, it's one of those things that you know just comes along, and it just you just feel like, well, got a, got a, got very lucky again. So you know, last few minutes here, I just got to ask you about how was that for a while there? You're juggling both the band's visit and Maisel for quite a while. How did you make that work? And we should also just really quickly, I want to note that in the end, there were Tonys for best musical for the band's visit for Katrina Link, who also, we should say, appears in Maisel as the fortune teller. And of course, for, for you, but just how did you juggle that schedule? You know, they helped, they helped me. Everyone helped me. They, uh, it, it just kind of timed out. I did the. I think I did the pilot of Maisel. That wasn't a very long time commitment. We had to wait to see if Amazon was going to pick it up, and then I did the off Broadway. I think I, then I did the off Broadway uh, version of Band's Visit. Then there was a there was a long period between the off Broadway and Broadway run because they had to get investors and they had to find the right theater and and while that six month period was happening, I was doing the first season of Maisel, and then that season ended and I went into the Broadway run and then that I, I it just was the best you know the best possible good fortune I think I had to leave the band's visit early though to to start season two uh, the Broadway run was going and I had to bail out before I really would have liked to because we had to start and go to Paris which was so Poor guy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, um, and and just as you grew into playing this guy uh, who, you know, Columbia mathematics professor initially and just a finicky, interesting character. Can you talk about you've said he kind of reminded you of your own dad? Yeah, in a lot of ways. Um, My dad was very pragmatic and uh, was a like Abe, a super math brain, you know, he was a numbers guy. <laughs> and uh, unlike my mom was the opposite. She couldn't care and not one whit about that stuff. And my mother was much more, you know, focused on, you know, she was so well read and she loved film and she did, she loved theater too. And she, uh, you know, she was that other, that other spirit. But, but I did connect Abe to my own father and again, because I grew up, I was very young, you know, during the that period, and I, I, 
I can sort of visualize him in those kinds of, well, him and his his uh, cronies, you know, in those cars, in those clothes, in the in those hats. You know? <laughs> um, so it was a it was a really familiar kind of familiar landscape for me. And in, and as promised to you, I guess by the Paladinos, you know, it wasn't just Midge who's whose story has evolved over the course of this. Your character in season one, I think it, it may be to sum it up essentially is a guy whose world is turned upside down. His, his uh, daughter is not who he thought she was becoming both a divorcee and a comic uh, season two, your own, his own marriage is now on the rocks and he, and he winds up quitting his job season three He's the guy who's now getting in touch with his younger self. I guess I just wonder what you've made of these of the arc of of this character. Well, uh, I'm you know I'm so trusting. I trust the writers, and I I uh, I didn't know any of this, of course, going into any one season where you know where Abe was going to go. But I just you know I love that about these writers. It, it's so rare in a TV show you you get to go through all these changes. You know, oftentimes you, if you're uh, on series television, your your character serves a certain, you know, has a certain voice, serves a certain function in the in the story. And, and, uh, and, and that very often does not change much, which is, can be frustrating for actors uh, where you kind of, you know, Yes, you have job security, but you get sort of stuck playing two or three colors um, continually, and so that's that can be frustrating. Whereas with these writers, man, you it's curveball after curveball, and you know um, you're never you're never on on sure footing. It makes it really challenging and uh, keeps it you know keeps it alive. Well, I, I have to confess it is my favorite show on television. I can't get enough of it. And I think uh, maybe maybe I can leave you with this question, which is that you're so amazing in this. Rachel Brosnahan is off the charts. Who I mean, it's um, she's great. And I wonder of the scenes that you two have had together, is there one that you've most enjoyed playing as you look back? And you've had a lot of great moments together. She's, she, yeah, she is. She's a rare, rare bird. And, um, so versatile and, and and so incredibly just so hardworking. I mean, her task is is just monumental. I, I've had a lot of really great fun scenes with her, but one that stands out the most is the first the scene in the Catskills. The first time Abe sees her on stage performing her stand up and and becomes aware that that she's doing this, and then it the it dawns on him that this is this is what she has been doing. When she go, when she was going out at night for all that time in season one and two, she is so phenomenal in that routine. When she starts a routine, becomes aware of Abe, becomes aware of me, and then can't stop, is has this compulsion to keep going and digging her hole, you know, deeper and deeper. And uh, I have a, I've said this before, and I I bears repeating. This her for her performance will be studied by acting students in the future. I mean, it is so complex what she is doing. <laughs> and oh yeah. I I am 
I'm just, I just love, you know, I just love doing that because I got to see take after take. And I got a lot of, um, a lot of takes on my side when they're, when they're on me. And it was challenging too, because again, this goes back to, <laughs> everything goes back to directors sitting on me really <laughs> only for 40 years though. Uh, <laughs> much like the band's visit. I mean, Amy, uh, Amy was directing that one, I think. And she just said, look, you know, you, you don't even need to, I think, I think Abe just can't react. He just, he is just so stunned and stymied. And, and, and in a way it, 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 it allowed me to just kind of freeze up. And by doing that, all of this, this enormous internal flush kind of, kind of starts to boil, you know, this, all your, all your guts, you know, start to boil up and, and it, it just sort of comes into your chest and into your heart and into your brain and into your eyeballs. And it's, it's, it's completely internal and, and yet it's, it's enough for the camera. Oh, so, um, so that was, that was really, really a game changer for me in terms of understanding, uh, the, this guy and the dynamics, uh, understanding what 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 his kind of role, uh, how he saw himself as a father and as a man. Yeah, oh, it's terrific, and uh, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I I love what you guys are doing on that show, and I I hope you do it forever. And uh, me too. And yeah, thank you for doing this. Great to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free and leave us a rating on iTunes or your podcast app, as well as on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash awards chatter. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, Thanks for joining us. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.